you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 4, where we are going to be looking in a bit at the temptation of Christ and lessons to learn from Jesus' temptation. Sometimes when you're eating a nice, yummy bowl of ice cream on a hot summer day, you feel like just eating the whole thing as fast as you can. Other times you want to take very small bites and kind of stretch it out. And so my intention was is to teach the whole temptation section in one big bowlful. But then last night I started thinking, I can't do this. This would be wrong. I mean, I know people who struggle with sin. And uh, I struggle with sin. And maybe we should go slower. Maybe I could just teach half of it. Just do, you know six or seven verses and then i thought well maybe i could just teach a quarter of it and then i told everybody the first service i was going to teach the first two verses and i lied to them too (laughs) we're going to do verse one (laughs) and uh since every since sin is something we all struggle with i thought you know we aren't in that much of a hurry let me just add another year onto Luke. No, um, but yeah, we're going to go slow. I don't know how long we're going to take, but I think it would be good just to take some time in here and try and offer some some help to explain things theologically and practically, so that you, as you encounter temptations and try and get over sin, you have more of a a fuller understanding. Just by going fast, I'm just not able to appease my conscience. So we're going to go slow, and that's how it is. Now, I want you to think a little bit about your beloved sin, that favorite sin that you love and you hate, the sin that you have confessed a thousand times and the sin that brings you pleasure and the sin that brings you grief. You love it because it brings you pleasure and you hate it because it brings you pain and you know it grieves the Holy Spirit and you know it displeases God. And sometimes it may even cause others pain. And you know God's grace is sufficient for you. You know what the scriptures say. And you have confessed your sin over and over again. You've repented of it many times. You turn from it over and over again. And yet you keep turning back. And sometimes you may seem to think that just, I'm, I'm getting victory over this. I, I, I'm just not sinning as much in this area as I was. And I'm, I'm making headway and, you know, I'm praying like crazy and I've memorized some verses and everything seems to be great. And, and then you fall back into it again miserably in some moment of weakness. You begin to be tempted all over again. And there is this struggle in your mind. And first you you start holding off and then your lust and your greed and your flesh cry out to be pleased. And so you shut your mind off to God. You become a practical atheist and you commit high-handed rebellion again. And then after you have played the traitor... Like Peter, you are filled with grief and remorse and 
you want to just run off and hide from God. And inside you begin to waste away because all of that unconfessed sin is just rotting in your heart. And it sours all of your life. And finally, you muster up enough courage to crawl back to God. And confess your sin again. And you're thinking to yourself, Lord, how many times am I going to do this? But you know God is faithful and you know his grace is sufficient and you know that he is going to forgive you and he does. And so you grovel before God in prayer for a while. You cry out for mercy. You cry out for grace. And you know you have it from God. You ask God to change you and you know his word promises that, but you keep falling into this same sin and you're wondering if you have to die before you can get over it. You ask God for strength to resist the temptation in the future. And the Holy Spirit brings to your mind that his grace is always sufficient for you to resist every temptation. And you say to yourself, what am I doing wrong? I mean, what's wrong with me? Do you know that? Do you know that feeling? Why can't I, by God's grace, conquer the sin? Why do I love it so when it causes me and my Lord so much grief? When can you be free from this evil and this what seems to be incurable leprosy that just clings to you? Do you know that person? I think we all know that person. That is the person we look at in the mirror every day. And if you think, well, I don't know that person. I, I don't know who you're talking about. I mean, come on. Are you trying to tell me that Christians sin? I want you to turn to Proverbs 24. Proverbs 24. And I want you to look at verse 16 of Proverbs 24. Actually, look at verse 15. Verse 15 says, Do not lie in wait, O wicked man, against the dwelling of the righteous. Do not destroy his resting place. So notice, this is an interesting proverb because here this proverb is directed to a wicked man. And the wicked man is told, listen, don't go lying in wait. Don't go destroying the resting place of the righteous man. Don't attack his dwelling. For, verse 16, a righteous man falls seven times. Now, just stop there. That, that term seven times means completely over and over again. The righteous man will fall over and over again. But keep reading. But what? And rises again. But the wicked stumble in a time of calamity implied and they don't rise again. But the point I want you to see there is this. Righteous people fall repeatedly. That's it. Turn to Psalm 37. One of my favorite psalms. Psalm 37. 
Look at verse 23 of Psalm 37. It says, The steps of a man are established by the Lord, and he delights in his way. When he falls, he will not be hurled headlong, because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. Notice that the text does not say, if he falls, but the text says, when he falls. And what happens when the righteous man falls? Is he hurled headlong? No. Why? Because the Lord's holding his hand. If you've had little kids or maybe you're a grandparent, uh, you know, you're taking along uh, walking with some little toddler that's just learning how to walk. What happens? They fall, but you've got their hand. So even though they fall, you pull them back up again. And that's what God does for us. The righteous man falls completely. The righteous man falls over and over again. But when we fall, we are not hurled headlong Because God is holding our hand. We pop back up in contrast to the wicked man who falls and never gets back up. Now think about this. The righteous man does this. Who was it who wrote in Psalm 51, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know that my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Who said that? Who said, purify me with hyssop, wash me, hide your face from my iniquities and my blot out my transgressions, deliver me from blood guiltiness. Who said that? The man after God's own heart, King David, the writer of half the book of Psalms. Who said in Romans 7, when, I, when the law came telling me not to covet, it produced in me coveting of every kind. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I do not practice what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. Who said that? Who said, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of good is not. Who said... For the good that I want to do, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. What sinner penned those words? Who said, I find then the principle that evil is present within me. Who said, I see a different law in my members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Who said all those things? Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, the greatest missionary who has ever lived, writer of half the New Testament. The one who suffered for Jesus probably more than any person who's ever lived. And why do I tell you this? I tell you this to let you know that you're not alone in your striving against sin. 
I tell you this so that Satan doesn't try to incapacitate you with guilt. When you feel like, oh, you know, I've sinned. Yes. And I've done what's wrong. Yes. Well, don't just grovel there. Satan with one side of his sword is going to knock you down. And then once you're on the ground, he with the other side of the sword, he wants to hold you there. Get up. I have news for you. You are a sinner. I am a sinner. We are all sinners. Okay, we're sinners. Let's get that down. If you don't have it already, if you're sitting out there and you're deluded and deceived and thinking, well, Jack, speak for yourself. I've gotten over this sin thing. You know, I've reached some sort of state of perfection. Well, then you need to hear what God wants you to hear in 1 John 1, 8, that any man who says he has no sin is deceived, deluded, and the truth is not in him. You need Jesus is what you need. As a Christian saved by grace and powered by the Holy Spirit, sanctified by the word of God, you will never reach a state of perfection your whole life here on earth, ever. Never happen. You will grow, yes. You will sin less, yes. By God's grace, you will overcome various sins in your life, yes. You will slowly be transformed in the image of Christ, yes. And this will all happen by God's grace, and you can expect this. That is what the Word of God teaches. It's just the way it is. Every Christian will continue to battle against sin. It is every Christian's battle. In fact, you will discover, if you haven't already, that the more you grow in the Lord, the more you realize what a sinner you are. The more you know the word of God, the more you study the scriptures, the more you will realize how wretched you are. And you'll be, when, how does God ever use you? You're so wicked. And other people may look at you and go, oh yeah, well, this is a godly person. And you look at you and go, oh yeah, this is an extra wicked person. I am the chief of sinners. Oh, wretched man that I am. And that is normal Christianity. Now, I don't want you to take what I just said as some sort of demonic excuse to rationalize your sin. And we aren't going there. I wasn't trying to encourage you to continue in rebellion. I just want you to know that I know that you're a sinner. I want you to know that I'm a sinner. I want you to know that you're never going to be perfect in this life. You're always going to battle against sin, and that's the way it is. All the godliest people who ever lived battled against sin. As a matter of fact, the more they knew God, the more they knew how much of a sinner they were. That's standard Christianity. But don't let your corrupt heart try to convince you that since you are a sinner saved by grace, you might as well sin that grace might abound then that goes demonic. Don't be so foolish as to see striving against your sin because after all, you'll never be perfect, so why even try? And whatever you do, never blame anyone else or anything else for your sin. Or even think for a moment that there have, 
has ever been, is, or will ever be a time when you have to sin. You just can't help but sinning. You, you're a victim, forced to sin. That's never true. And I'm speaking to Christians here. If you're not a Christian, of course, you cannot but sin. If you're not a Christian, you are dead in your sin. You are a slave to sin. Um, You are held captive by Satan to do his will. And I don't care how religious you think you are. If you don't know Jesus, you don't do anything but continually commit rebellion against God. Even all your good works, all your religious activities, your Bible reading, your prayer, your philanthropic deeds. All of those things are sin, are filthy rags, dung and filth in the sight of God and you need to repent you need to receive Jesus Christ trusting in what he did only to save you and if you do that then you can be saved and you can start now on your walk of faith but if you've never done that your problem is not that you sin sometimes it's problem that you never obey But for those of you who know Jesus Christ as your Lord, which means you have committed your life to him, you have understood he died in your place on the cross, and you're trusting in his work and his person to save you only, he is your Lord and master for you people. You have no excuse to sin ever. I want you to know Satan never makes you sin. Your wife never makes you sin. Your husband never makes you sin. It's not your mother-in-law's fault. It's not your boss's fault. It's not your circumstances that have made you stressed out and anxious and worry. Trials have never made you sin. Sickness has never made you sin. Depression has never made you sin. Uh, Upbringing has never made you sin. It was not your alcoholic father or abusive mother or whatever. The only person that ever makes you sin is you. Ever. Period. Never forget that. I frequently talk with people who are in sin, and it's amazing how they try to justify their sin. Well, they tell me things like, well, you just, you just don't know my wife. You just don't know my husband. You just don't know my boss. You just don't know my neighbor with the yappy dog. And what they're trying to tell me is, listen, if you had half a clue, if you were in my circumstance, if you were in my shoes, you would realize you have to sin too. Some try to blame their sin on their circumstances. You know, I have so many things in my life right now that just aren't going right. I I can't help but sin. No, you don't have to. Nothing ever makes you sin. We have a friend whose husband was recently gone on a business trip and she was left to take care of the business. And uh, it just so happens. And one day her car broke down. And then her refrigerator quit working. And her washing machine stopped working. So she had to drive her husband's truck and the door was broken. So she had to crawl out the passenger side. And she had visitors coming from out of town. (laughs) And all this happened in one day. Why she has the mountain of responsibilities of trying to take care of her husband's business. Now, does a person like that have to sin? No. No, that person doesn't have to sin. 
That person doesn't have to do what's wrong. Now, is there a temptation to sin? Ooh, you bet. I'm sure that person was sorely tempted to sin. But you don't have to. Our circumstances don't make us sin. It's not the traffic jam. It's not the flat tire. It's not the broken water pipe. It's not the bad hair day. Nothing. There's only one person who makes you sin. And you know who that is? It's you and only you. Now, you might be saying, well, what do you mean by sin? Listen, James 4, 17. Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. First John 3, 4. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness and sin is lawlessness. First John 5, 17. All unrighteousness is sin. What is sin? Violating the will of God. What is sin? Not doing right in the sight of God. What is sin? Knowing the right thing to do and not doing it. All those things are sin. I may not know your wife or your husband or your boss or your flat tire. But I know what God's word says. Turn to James chapter 1 verse 14. James chapter 1 verse 14. We need to just come face to face before we begin to get into temptation in a detail. You need to come face to face understanding that there is a person that causes you to sin and that person is you. James chapter 1. Well, let's look at verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. So, first of all, don't blame it on God. He didn't do it. Lord, it was the woman you gave me. No. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Now, you could just put your name in there, each one. But Jack Hughes is tempted when he is carried away and he is enticed by his own lust. That's it. Now, the the terms being used here are fishing terms. Was enticed. One of the things you learn when you're fishing streamers in a freestone river is you cast across stream and when the fly is swinging down, the fish almost always strikes when the fly straightens up. Because that's so enticing to the fish because it's moving really fast and as soon as it stops, sometimes you'd see the fish swimming fast after your streamer and then you just give them some slack, mouth opens up, fish on. And that's what happens. You, each one is tempted when he is carried away enticed by his own lust, this desire to have, this desires within him. And what happens? Well, when that lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. And then he says in verse 16, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Why? Because so many people are. So many people actually believe I can't help but sin. 
It's my mother-in-law. It's my job. It's my brother. It's my circumstances. It's whatever in my life. It's my health. It's whatever it is. I can't help but sin. So he puts that extra little phrase in there. Don't be deceived. It's no one else's fault but yours. Don't be deceived. No one, beloved, has ever made you sin, even once. And you may be sitting out there and you may feel, but feel like saying, well, Jack, you're right. I, I, you know, I can see from the scriptures here that uh, I'm a sinner. And I, I can see that, as you've told us, that godly people sin. And I may not be real godly, but, you know, I want you to know I fit into the sinning category. And, uh, you know, if David couldn't help sin and Paul couldn't help sin, I mean, what hope is there for me? I mean, Christians just do that. Even godly people do this. And so, you know, I just can't help it. And what you're doing is you're justifying again. You're thinking in your mind, well, you know, you just told us that first John one eight says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Didn't you just tell us that? Yes, I did. And if you're thinking that, you're trying to justify your sin again by appealing to the fact that, well, I can only sin because I'm a sinner. No, that's not true. Because when you are a believer and you know Jesus Christ, you have all the resources not to sin. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. You know, one of the hardest things with helping somebody over a sin is to get them to come to the place where they realize it's their fault. I mean, what if I'm talking to somebody and they don't realize it's their fault and they think it's their mom or their dad or their job or their boss, or their wife. I can't help them until they say it's me. Well, let's see what first Corinthians 10 teaches us now in first Corinthians 10. Verses 1 through 5, Paul points out that when God used Moses to deliver the people of Israel from Egypt, that he did many miracles to do this. He performed all these miracles, the plagues, you know, the pillar of fire, the parting of the Red Sea, all of these things. They all saw that. And what happened to that whole generation of people? They all dropped dead in the wilderness. According to the end of Hebrews chapter 3, they dropped dead because of two things, disobedience and unbelief. And look at what Paul says at the end of verse five, in verse five, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased. Most of them, that's an understatement Two made it for they were laid low in the wilderness. Why does Paul tell us this? Look at verse six. Now, these things happen as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. We want to go back to Egypt. We want to go back to our sin. We want to go back into rebellion. We want to disobey God. We want to do this. God has brought us out here to slay us in the wilderness. He's not going to take care of us. We're going to starve to death. We're going to die of thirst, whatever. He, he wants to, he, Satan wants to tempt you to crave evil things. And what Paul is saying here, listen, you know, all those things in the Old Testament you read about, you know, all those stories you read about, you know, all those bad things that all those bad people did in the Old Testament. Well, I want you to know they're there for you, for your instruction. So you won't crave the same evil things as they also craved. Then Paul continues. Look at verses seven through ten. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. 
Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Talking about how all those different people were killed off during the wilderness wandering. And why does Paul tell us this? Look at verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example. And they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. You see all those wicked things those people did? Yeah, don't do that. Remember, they were all destroyed. Don't go there. But whenever you start talking about sin, there's always two extremes that people tend to go to. The first extreme is this. Well, you know, Jack, I can see that this is a problem for some of those who are less godly. You know, but I've kind of gotten over my sin problem. And, you know, when I was more fleshly and ignorant in the Lord, uh, then I, uh, you know, sinned quite a bit. But I just want you to know that I'm righteous now. I'm a godly person. And I feel sorry for people like this. These poor, poor, (sighs) immature believers. And Paul anticipates this. Look at verse 12. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. John Bunyan in Pilgrim's Progress pictures this perfectly. Program is getting rest at this one place. Christian, he's on his journey to the celestial city and he finds out that another Christian named Faithful has just left. And and if he hurries, he might be able to catch up with this other Christian faithful and um, and be able to travel with him to the celestial city. And so he heads off and he starts hoofing it. And pretty soon he sees him up in the distance. And all of a sudden he starts thinking to himself, you know, I could make myself look pretty good if I just kind of hurried on past him. You know, I mean, he's 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 walking a pretty good pace, but I could walk a little faster pace. I could go shooting by him and then he would look at me and he would think, boy, now there's a godly person. There's a person who's really pursuing after heaven. He'll look at me and he'll realize what a godly person I am. And that's exactly what he does. He comes up, goes shuffling by, and all of a sudden he's up in the in front of him and then looks back. And falls on his face. <laughs> Faithful comes up. Can I help you up? That is exactly what happens sometimes. When we see people in sin, when we see people out there on the street or people we know or, you know, just extra sinful, wretched people we read about in the paper, sometimes we look down our nose at them and we think, oh, man. Those poor wretched creatures. And we forget that we're poor wretched creatures too. That if it were not for the grace of God, we wouldn't be where we were. I mean, do you think God picked us because we were righteous? Absolutely not. And there's another extreme. Not only are there those people who, when you start talking about sin, go, well, he must be talking about that person down the pew from me. There's also the person who is kind of at the other end of the extreme. And he's thinking, well, you know, you're right. You know, I'm a sinner and I believe in worm theology. 
I, I'm a sinner. I was conceived in sin. I was born in sin and I'm sin because I'm a sinner and I can't help sin. I'm just a sinner. I mean, I'm sorry, but that's just the way I am. I was born that way, which is true. They were born that way. It's not true that they can't help sin. So Paul says what he does in verse 13. Look there. No temptation, if you like to mark your Bible, you could circle that word no. Temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. Now, just stop there for a second. What this means is, is listen, your situation is not unique. Your husband, your wife, your job, your mother-in-law, not unique. It's common. Whatever you're going through, I don't care how unique you think it is and how special your temptation is. Common to man, common to man. Look at the text. And God is faithful. Notice who's faithful here in this text. God is. Not you are faithful, but God is faithful. And notice what this faithful God does, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. The faithful God never, ever lets you get tempted beyond what you are able. He knows your limit and he makes sure that you're never tempted beyond that limit. And. With the temptation, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape so that you will be able to endure it or bear up under it. You learn three things from this verse. One, every sin you are ever tempted to commit is common to man. Two, God makes sure you are never tempted beyond what you are able. Three, every time you are tempted, God always provides a way of escape. Now, what implications does this have? What does this mean? It means God's grace is always sufficient every time to keep you from sinning. It means that it is possible for a believer to never sin again. Not probable, but possible. God gives every believer everything they need to always walk in righteousness. You can put it that way. Your sin is always your fault and it is always an unwillingness to rely upon God's grace and to take the way of escape that he has provided for you. Imagine yourself, you're in a burning building and somebody says, come on, let's go this way. Oh, the door's locked. Here's the key. But the door's locked. I'm going to burn. Here's the key. We're, we're going to die. Here's the key. Oh, I'm dying. Here's the key. I'm dead. You meet up with them in heaven. They're sitting in a corner with a white cap on. And you say, hey, what what happened down there? I burnt to death. Why didn't you help me? Hello? Didn't I give you the way of escape? Oh, yeah. And what was the problem? I would not take it. There is always a way of escape. God says so, and he never lies. You don't need lithium. You don't need therapy. You don't need more time. You don't need to mature a little bit more in Christ. You need to repent and rely on God's all-sufficient grace. It is always available for every believer to keep them from every temptation so that you can escape. 
You see, beloved, temptation is only an offer to sin. It is only a suggestion to sin. It is an appeal to sin. Hey, would you like to sin? That's all temptation is. Hey, look at this. This will be good for you. This will make you feel good. This will bring you some pleasure, some money, some prestige, some fame. Here, here. But it's not the will to sin. Temptation is not the will to sin. Do you know where the will to sin comes from? Person in the mirror at home. You. And only you. Now, hopefully I've convinced you that Christians are sinners, that you as a believer will continue in sin. And that if you ever say you have no sin, you're a liar. Hopefully I've tried to strip away every excuse that anyone might ever have. Well, it's this or it's that. And you realize that, no, you are a sinner. You will sin. And that every time you sin, it's because you as a believer have failed to use the resources God has provided. Has already given you. Now, can you imagine what it would be like to never sin again? I can. I mean, just imagine that. What would that be like? You're driving down the freeway. Some teenage punk comes over and cuts you off and almost kills you and your family. God bless you, child. (laughs) You get woke up again at three o'clock in the morning by that yappy dog next door. Just wake up. Oh, Lord, thank you for puppies. And every day you walk around saying the right thing, doing the right thing, thinking the right thing, never confessing, just praising God and praying and reading your Bible, memorizing verses and serving people like Jesus did. You're living like a holy one, a saint, perfectly freed from sin. Well, since every sin is every Christian's battle, That is the goal. That's the idea. Never sin again. But since we're all sinners and we're all striving against sin, we need to spend some time looking at this subject. I don't know how much time. I mean, you know, if we add an extra year onto Luke, what's the deal? I don't know if we'll go that slow, but it could happen. I just want to just spend some time now in the first service. I I lied to him. I told him we were going to get through the first two verses of Luke 4. That's totally not true. Um, We might not even get through the first verse today. But let's just... um Let's just get on to the introduction. What I just gave you was the introduction to the introduction. And so now let's get to the introduction to the text since we've introduced this, the whole topic of sin and temptation. Remember that our text right now is following... The genealogy. But before the genealogy, what what was there? Chapter 3, John the Baptist comes on the scene. He's preaching, right? He's preaching that men should repent. John has a purpose to his ministry. And that purpose is to prepare people's hearts to receive the Messiah. He has a method. Preaching. He has a message. Repent. And be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. And that's exactly what he does. And while he is doing his thing, Jesus shows up to be baptized by him. And Jesus is baptized by him. And when Jesus is baptized by him, what happens? The heavens open up. 
The Holy Spirit descends bodily in the form like a dove, lights upon Jesus, kind of letting everybody know this is my anointed one. And a voice comes out of heaven saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am pleased. Now, at that point, in verse 22 of Luke 3, Luke stops the narrative and decides he will give an additional argument for Jesus being the Messiah by giving his genealogy. So he's stopped the narration, and now he is saying, okay, let me just explain to you right now that Jesus is the Messiah by his pedigree. And so he shows that he is of royal blood, that he is of the descendant of David, that he is of a descendant of Judah, that he is the promised seed of Abraham. And so he qualifies to be the Messiah. So after he said that, he now goes back to the narrative. So if you took the genealogy out, the text would just smooth right through from Jesus is baptized, comes out, heavens open up. Holy Spirit descends, Father's voice comes out, pronounces him to be the Son of God, and he has the Holy Spirit, and now we're ready to read the text. Look at Luke chapter 4, verses 1 and following, and follow along as I read. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they had ended, he became hungry. And the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. The devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory for it has been handed over to me. And I give it to whoever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And he led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for him from here, for it is written... He will command his angels concerning you to guard you and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to test. And when the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. Now, from this text this morning, I was going to point out three things. It's just going to be one. And it's just going to be from verse one. Look there. And the things that we're going to look at from verse one are there are times when you are more vulnerable to temptation than others. Look at verse one. The text says Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, which is where he was baptized and pronounced to be God's son. And the Holy Spirit came upon him and was led around by the spirit. Now, just stop there for a moment. I don't know. You kind of get the picture here. Jesus is on a leash and he's being led around by the spirit. What, what, what is this happening? Uh, what is this that is happening? Well, Luke is, a, is major into the Holy Spirit. As a matter of fact, all the way through his gospel and all the way through the book of Acts, he mentions the Holy Spirit and especially being full of the Holy Spirit and 
Holy Spirit's coming upon people, for instance, in Luke 115 and 135 and 141 and 147 and 167 and 225 and 26 and 27 and 316. And if you look at 322, when he was baptized, the Holy Spirit came upon him. So what Luke is trying to establish here is, listen, the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus in bodily form. So John and maybe everybody else could realize he was the anointed one of God. And now he's launching out into his ministry in the power of the spirit. That's why he says he was full of the Holy Spirit. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, but Jack, does that mean at times sometimes we're half full or quarter full? I mean, what does that full of the Holy Spirit mean? Well, the phrase full of the Holy Spirit is just a phrase that describes a person who has the Holy Spirit's help or abiding presence and is submitting to the Holy Spirit's will as revealed in the will the word of God. That's what it means to be full of the Holy Spirit. And one commentator rightly noted that Jesus's baptism was not just an event in the past, but a reality to be lived out. And this is a really good point. You know, there's two different ways that you and I will be baptized. One is, as we're baptized as believers in water, and obedience to the word of God is a public profession of our faith. And in other ways, when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we are baptized or placed into the body of Christ, right? And you are then received the Holy Spirit and are sealed with the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption and never leaves you. So you always have the Holy Spirit from the time of saving faith in Jesus Christ. Now, when we are baptized, whether it be in the tank or whether it be through faith in Christ, the, the baptism itself isn't like the end of it. It isn't just a historical trinket that we have. No, it symbolizes something. It symbolizes you dying to sin and being resurrected with Christ into newness of life. Or we might put it this way to an ongoing living out of Christ's likeness. And what's neat is, as we see here in Jesus example that as soon as he is baptized and there's a manifestation of the holy spirit immediately he launches off into the ministry and the first thing that happens is god leads him out into the wilderness god leads him out into the wilderness and remember that jesus has entered into his ministry phase and i would just encourage you to remember that you and i must meet temptation the same way that jesus met temptation how is that full of the holy spirit full of the holy spirit that is relying on the spirit's power to help you notice in verse one that not only was jesus full of the holy spirit and being he was being led around by the spirit and this is what's interesting is that jesus was in complete submission to the spirit's will wasn't he It wasn't just that the Holy Spirit came upon him, but he was being led by the will of the Spirit. Now, in the New Testament, it speaks of this in several different ways. For instance, in Galatians 5, verse 16, it commands us to walk by the Spirit. And it says, if you are walking by the Spirit, you will not carry out the desires of the what? The flesh. So you won't be sinning if you're walking by the Spirit, according to Galatians 5, 16 and following. In Ephesians 5, verse 18, it describes it as being filled with the Spirit. 
And in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, which is the parallel passage to Ephesians 5, 18, in Colossians 3, 16, it tells us to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. And that is a synonym for what Paul said in Ephesians 5, 18, because both of them produce psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. And so the three components are there. If you're going to be full of the Spirit or walk in the Spirit or be filled with the Spirit, one, you must have the Holy Spirit's abiding presence. In other words, you must be a believer. Secondly, you must have God's Word instructing you. And third, you must walk in obedience according to the Word of God, trusting in the power of the Holy Spirit. And if you do that, you are full of the Spirit. And that's what Jesus is doing. Look at the end of verse 1. At the end of verse 1, it says... What does the Holy Spirit do? Led Jesus in to the wilderness. Now, when you think of wilderness, what do you think of? I, I have a very clear picture in mind. I think of the, the, the wilderness of Idaho, the wilderness of no return, big pine trees and granite peaks and rivers and moss and ferns and a great place to be. All the elk hide there. It's great. But that's not what this is. What this is something totally different. This is the dry, arid, desert wasteland. What happened is, is the Mediterranean Sea is west of the mountains, Jerusalem, and that whole ridge of mountains that runs down um, from north to south in the land of Israel. So moisture comes up from the Mediterranean, and it all precipitates on the west side of the mountains. So on the other side of the mountains, it's very dry. Now, we don't know exactly uh, what part of the wilderness Jesus is in, but most likely he is either in the hills above the Jordan Rift or in the Jordan Rift where the Dead Sea is, and it's just hot and dry and rocks and plants and dirt and just it's bad, bad place to be. And if you were let out there, you would be what? Isolated. Isolated. And this is the first lesson we can learn from the text. When you are isolated, you are vulnerable to what? Temptation. You ask yourself, well, why would the spirit do that? Because it was the spirit's will that Jesus go out there and be tempted by the devil. The lesson we learn is just know that when you're isolated from other believers, from accountability, when no one's around, you're vulnerable. You're like the wildebeest on Discovery Channel that has wandered away from the herd. And you know what happens to the wildebeest. Now, he has about as much chance of surviving as an extra on Star Trek. He's going to die. The lions are going to eat him. And we know that Satan roams around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And there is safety in numbers. And that's why the scriptures say, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves. This is the habit of some. Why? Because there is encouragement in numbers. There is strength in numbers. There is accountability in numbers. Listen, people are engaged in Internet pornography. They're not doing it in the foyer. 
People who are having trouble on, you know, eating binges aren't doing it in the foyer. People who are stealing from their company don't do it so everybody knows what's going on. When do all these things happen? In secret, in isolation. Turn to Proverbs 7. Most of Proverbs is a book of little pithy, you know, one or two or three verse sayings. But there's a couple sections in Proverbs that actually have a sustained theme or story. And Proverbs chapter 7 is one of them, along with Proverbs 31. Proverbs 7 is a text where Solomon is instructing his son how to avoid the adulteress and to avoid falling into immorality. And he wants to instruct his son in keeping away from the foreigner, the adulteress. And so he instructs his son by recounting to his son Something that he has witnessed and lessons that we can learn from what he has witnessed. Look at verse six. For at the window of out the window of my house, I looked out through my lattice. He's sitting up in his house. He's looking out one night, drinking a cup of tea. And I saw among the naive and discerned among the youths, a young man lacking sense. Now, just stop right there. You see the problem here right away. We don't even know what's going to happen. All we know is this person has a disadvantage. Why? They're naive. They're young and they're lacking sense. And usually being naive and lacking sense comes with being young. So already he is disadvantaged this young man because of his youth, because he's naive Because he's lacking sense. Now, notice what the verse goes on to say. Passing through the street near her corner, he takes the way to her house. Just stop there for a second. So not only does this young man now have against him the fact that he is naive, young, and lacking sense, he goes to the wrong place. He takes the way to her house. He thinks, well, I'm just going to go on that street near her house. And so he goes there to kind of loiter. And when does he do this? At high noon? On his lunch break? Look at nine. He does it in the twilight. In the evening. In the middle of the night. And in the darkness. Why? Because no one's watching. Because he's isolated. Everybody's sleeping except Solomon, who happens to be looking out his window. And he takes the way at that time because there's no accountability. And of course, as soon as he gets there, behold, a woman comes to meet him dressed as a harlot and cunning of heart. And read the rest later. A lot of things he does wrong. The point is this. When you're isolated, you're vulnerable. When you're isolated, you're vulnerable. Some people come to church, they slink out. 
Nobody even knows who they are. They don't become friends with anybody. They don't let anybody over to their house. They don't go over to anybody else's house. They don't go to anybody's Bible state. They just come. They slink out. Why? Because they want to be isolated. They're wildebeest cut out from the herd, and they're vulnerable. And when you get your life like that, you will find yourself to be vulnerable also. And we just want to close with this thought. Learn the lesson that when you are apart from Christian fellowship, when you are apart from those who know you, when you are apart from people who can hold you accountable, encourage you to do what's right in the Lord, you will be vulnerable, more vulnerable to temptation than when you aren't. So don't go there. Don't go there. Dark places, lonely places, when no one's around, just makes you a wildebeest on the plain by itself when the lions are hunting. So what have we learned this morning? One, you're a sinner. I'm a sinner. We're all sinners. Two, Christian sin. Godly Christian sin. And they sin all the time. And if they say they don't, they're liars. Three, no one ever makes you sin. You always sin. You always choose to sin. And it's always your fault. Nothing, no one, no circumstance has ever made you sin. And finally, know this, that isolation sets you up for temptation. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for what we've learned so far just from this text and other texts related to sin and temptation. I just pray that in the weeks to come, we would all learn these important lessons that, Father, we would come to grips with the fact that our sin is our own, that first and foremost, it is against you and you only that we have sinned, that there is no excuse for our sin. And Father, that we would walk before you in holiness and not try to justify our sin or make excuses for it. But Father, realize that you always provide a way of escape. Father, we want that way of escape and we want to learn how to apply your grace. Father, First, help us to remember that isolation sets us up for temptation. And Father, in the weeks to come, may we learn more about temptation and how to avoid it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.